Hi, I'm Chris Hutchings and I'm your host. Welcome to the 10Q Interview Podcast. In today's episode, I talked to the Guild of Dads founder, Mr. Joe Horton. Um, oh, I really enjoyed this one. I know I say that every week, but I did really enjoy it. And I think you will too. Lots to take away, um, whether you're a dad or not. If this is your first time here, I wish you a very, very warm welcome. I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm sure you will. Let me know your favorite bit on social media, at 10Q Interview, everywhere you may listen. And don't forget to hit subscribe or follow on whatever platform you are currently listening to this on. It would mean the world to me, and no doubt Joe too, if you share this episode far and wide. There is so much value packed in it that you will know at least one person, if not several that you'll think of when listening to this and think, you know what, they would really benefit from hearing it too. So make sure to let them know. Now, on to the podcast. Joe, thank you so much for coming on 10Q Interview this morning. It's um, a pleasure to have you on board. I'm really looking forward to our chat. And um, are you ready to crack on? Yeah, I'm ready to crack on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me on. Oh, mate, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I've been following your stuff for a bit now, and uh, I, I'm looking forward to where we're going to go with this chat. Um, you meet a stranger bar, wedding, cafe, wherever it might be, and they ask you what you do, what is it you're most likely to say to them? I'm most likely to say to them that my day job is selling industrial products, but having gone through a a period of change in my life, I also help men and dads specifically uh, at the the midway point of life uh, restructure their lives so they find more meaning and purpose. Okay. Uh, and uh, that, in a nutshell, is what I would say. I feel like there's a bit of a backstory there that we might need to dive into. Yes, there is. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, <laughs> definitely. Um, so I went through a phase. I would say a few years back. I was 36 at the time. I get a f- my dad had been poorly for a few weeks uh, with like a chest infection that he couldn't shift. Right, uh, and I remember him coming into my office on the Monday, and he said to me and my brother, "Like I've, I've been feeling really rough, but the doctor's uh, done a blood test. My blood value's a bit out, but um, I'm feeling a bit better." Anyway, on the Tuesday, we get a phone call to say that he's had the, f- the first of two strokes. Um, oh, so we all rush into the hospital. I mean, he was seventy, but he was in good health. I mean, we talked about uh, cycling before we came on air today, and. Uh, so he was he was a keen cyclist. He did sort of four or five hours on his bike, um, and so he was in good shape. Uh, so it was so whilst he was seventy, it was it was a bit of a shock because you know we we didn't think that something like that would happen till probably you know ten plus years later than that. So yeah. um, so we were going to hospital. Uh, it turns out that that first stroke was knocked out. Uh, he's feeling in his body on 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 one side um and then the next day he gets through that first day then the next day we get another phone call he's had a second stroke which is like a the fatal one which is that where you where you get ushered into the the room and anyone that's ever ever been in hospital will relate to this you kind of get ushered into this room and then you're waiting there for what seems like an eternity and this doctor walks in and they say right okay this is the this is the prognosis your dad's body's shutting down it, we don't know how long it's going to be. It could be a matter of hours, could be a matter of days. It turned out it was only a, a few hours. So that afternoon he kind of, he slipped away. But um, so in the aftermath of that, I'm kind of obviously 
grieving and, and going through the bereavement process. But also, in 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 the years following that, I begin to think, well, what does this mean for me? You know, okay, dad was seventy when he died. I'm thirty six now, so arguably you could say I'm at the kind of halfway point of life, yeah, yeah. which is always a bit of a weird one because we none of us ever know when our time his time is up so but you know if you if you if you look at it on the basis of averages so i begin to kind of think about you know what what do i want to do what does this mean to me what does you know what do i want my life to look like when i when i look back on on my life and um and so i begin to kind of ask myself these these questions and uh by pure chance i was driving to work one morning I remember it vividly. I actually remember where I was in the car when I heard it. And I was listening to this podcast and it was about a guy who had started this men's movement, but he'd also started this kind of mastermind or brotherhood for guys. Okay. Um, it was something like $70 a month to join. And he was like, okay, what we, what we do is we work a number of different areas of life, mental health, physical health, relationships, and career, uh, and we have an accountability structure built in and it's like a brotherhood. So you're working with other men in a, in a similar position that, that have kind of got a growth orientated mindset, if you like. And I, and I, and it appealed to me because up until that point I'd been into maybe sport, I'd maybe into been into like a meditation and kind of dabbled in sort of self-help if you like, but I'd never worked a number of different areas of my life at the same time. Can I, can I, sorry, so, can I just interrupt one quick, were you, were you happy at this point? Um, I was happy in the sense that, and, th and this is something I talk about a lot in terms of men and dads. Uh, I, I had everything that would, from the outside looking in, indicate that I was successful. I was yeah. running a seven-figure business. I had a house. I had two beautiful children, a lovely wife. Uh, I went on holidays. You know, everything looked great, but I just it felt as if there was something kind of missing. And I think that as, as I found out, as I went further down my uh, path, one of the books that had the biggest impact on me was uh, Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. And okay. funny enough, I've got a picture, a quote from his book and he's and it, on my wall here. And it says, life is never made unbearable, unbearable by circumstances, but only by lack of meaning and purpose. Uh, and I think that resonate it resonated with me that quote, and I think it resonates with a a lot of men of a certain age because it I resonates that, with me just for just for the record, like yeah. So why does it why, do, why does that resonate? Why does it resonate with you? Do you think, Chris? Why? Um, because you're right. You get to a certain age where you feel you, it's funny when you when you were saying that. I was like, oh feel like something missing and i'm the same currently like i'm just we were talking about this literally last night and the night before it's, it's kind of something on my radar at the moment and I, and I think you're right you get to a certain age and you start being a bit more reflective and you think right okay business is good family's good healthy you know but there's just something missing it's like oh i haven't got that um i tell you the good analogy i give it to and i and i'm I'm finding, so I've recently moved from where we used to live in Hertfordshire, we now live in Gloucestershire. And I won't go into the backstory of why we moved, but 
the short version is that we're near nearer my wife's family and friends. My wife's from here originally. So I don't really know that many people around here. And it's kind of weird, that sort of sense of belonging to something, right? I don't really feel like I belong to anything. Like, you know, I, I work for myself. My company is me plus a few contractors. So it's not like I go into an office. I work from home, right? So it's not like I go into an office every day. I don't really play any team sports, as we talked about just before we went on there. Like I do a lot of individual triathlons, running, um, cycling, all that sort of stuff. And I look at other people I know. Uh, and the one person my wife and I talk about quite a lot is my brother-in-law. So he plays cricket. He's captain of the cricket team. He used to play rugby up until recently. And I always remember we used to go and watch them. And they had this kind of community there is, I don't know, it's like empowering almost. And I don't know. And I, and I feel like that's missing a little bit from my life at the moment, strangely. Mm. Yeah. And, and, and I think as well, there's, there's a couple of elements to unpack there. One is that when you're part of something bigger than you, like a, whether it be a team or an organization or a club or um, a, a brotherhood or so, whatever it's going to be, mm. I, I think that you have like a shared, you have like a shit, almost like a shared purpose and you're kind of in the trenches together. And and I think that plays into the a very kind of primal thing inside of us of, you know, being hunter gatherers and, uh, and, and, and doing stuff collectively as a community and and, and we see this in small scale communities uh th throughout the world uh it's talked about in the book the blue zones how these kind of small scale communities often have a element of community which also is conducive to good mental health so yeah some of these communities have uh the more more sense centenarians than any than any other areas on the planet um speaking to robin dunbar on my podcast who's a who's a, a professor of evolutionary anthropology at oxford he said that a lot of the research that's coming through now you know most of it people have been looking at have been concerned with diet and health and exercise but in actual fact one of the biggest predictors of longevity now is actually you know being part of a community and being yep. connected to other people. And I think at our core as human beings, we need that. And I think perhaps the modern world is be, is, is kind of stripped that from us in terms of large scale societies, technology, and yep. having less and less kind of face-to-face -face interaction. Um, but for, for sure, the subject of meaning is something that, so I, I read Man's Search for Meaning back in 2019 when I was on holiday. And this was after a period of having been part of this brotherhood for a period of time. And, and, and I've reflected back on it and I thought to myself, well, life is becoming more meaningful for me. And, and why is that? And the reason for it was that I'd created a, like a vision, a loose vision as to where my life wanted to be going. Um, I'd taken action on that vision and that was what was making life more meaningful. And I, and I coined a sort of loose equation, which is what I call the meaning equation, which is vision plus action equals meaning. Yeah. And what, and what that means is that, uh, like we, we, we can become quite obsessed by goals and we, and we don't really, um, fully appreciate the journey that we go on to get to those goals. And in actual fact, 
having a meaningful life, in my opinion, is is actually having a rough idea of where you're going and then experiencing the journey fully whilst going yeah, towards that. And 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 you spoke about doing your recent trip from Lands End to John O'Groats on your bike. All, all you're concerned about on the journey is kind of getting to the end because it's kind of that's funny. I, that's what I was thinking about when you were saying about being part of something because there was people I cycled with on a daily basis who I'd never met before in my life, but we had this um, collective goal of getting to the end. And I also weirdly thought about, so Coach Mack, who introduced us mm. in his podcast with me, he said about um, some of his happiest times in the military was, and I'm paraphrasing, he said when when they were in the shit, I think he said, because they all joined in together and they were trying to sort themselves out. And it was, again, it was that collective being part of something, but working towards that, trying to get out of the of the mess they were in. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. And, and I think the, and I think the thing with meaning as well is like, like people struggle with what their purpose is going to be. Yeah. Uh, and. Do you know what your purpose is? My, I, I always think that my purpose is to really help other people through what I know and what I've learned, really, in a, in a nutshell. And that okay. could take it, that could, for me, that the form that that takes is helping other men and other dads. But equally, you could apply that to other areas in theory. You could say, okay, I've, I, you could apply that to different kind of uh, industries as well in terms of, like you see a lot of people do it in like marketing they've learned how to do marketing so they help so they find it meaningful helping and teaching other people to do yeah. what they've learned to do so who, who, are, who are a few further steps behind them but i think the, the i think with meaning is it's kind of it's not like an emotion it's not like sadness or happiness or um frustration or anger or whatever the thing is with meaning is i think it's more like a it's more like a sense it's like sort of sits there between you know in the middle of your chest and, it, yeah. and the lack of it is like a, a a nagging aching feeling in the in your kind of solar plexus if you like and and i think the difficulty is for many of us is that because we don't want to know what it is and we can't articulate what it is we're often looking for something external to try and fix the way we're feeling inside uh and i think that's the problem that meaning presents for a lot of people they're like why do I feel so shit? I know what I'll do is I'll take this or I'll do this or I'll buy that. That'll make me feel better. And it just makes you feel worse, you know? So let me ask you a question then. So you mentioned about dad, you supporting dads. Um, so when I've had this conversation with people, one of the things that's come back about purpose and meaning is my purpose or my meaning should be my kids or raising my kids. And I wonder what your thoughts are on that. That's a really good question, actually. And a lot of people that I speak to on the podcast, I ask them at the end of it, what gives a meaning? And many of them say children. Uh, in fact, many people that I ask say children, particularly uh, parents and, and mums and dads. But uh, I think it's different for everyone. And I think that some people need a stronger purpose outside of their family than others mm. um and I, and and I, and I don't know whether the word meaning gets confused in this context in the sense that some people take meaning to, to, to mean oh what what is my reason for doing this 
yeah. and so their reason for doing it is their kids and their family okay my what why, about right? you yeah my why what but what about you what 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 lights you up inside what makes you forgetting your family or kids for a minute what is it that kind of that you, that, that makes life meaningful and purposeful for you uh, and, and i think that is trickier to kind of nail down for a lot of people because it's it's kind of abstract and i think for a lot of for a lot of men in particular like like when i was at school you went to the school the careers teacher and stuff and they said oh they, they do like this weird sort of like um psychographic thing to work out yeah. what you wanted to do for a living but most men i think um with the exceptions of certain professions end up falling into a profession so it's what okay so like a typical the typical example is someone in the city their mate said that a company was hiring or whatever come along for a job interview got the job that's exactly how well. i started working in the city <laughs> yeah exactly so it's a it's a, it's a bit of a cliche but it's kind of like like when i was growing up as a you know i left school in 97 left sixth form in 97 you know you you went to you, you, if you weren't going to become a doctor or lawyer uh or 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 a, or a profession as such you were going to be you know you're going to work in a city or you're going to get a local job locally and kind of work your way up from the bottom yeah. and you know if after a few years of pay and whatever is okay then you stick stick into that stick in that job um and that was kind of the way things went and when people say well, are you happy in your job well um, well, it gives me a good living, you know, and, 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 and that's the kind of trajectory a lot of, I think men kind of follow mm-hmm. until such point as they're like, they reach a stage where like, like we've just alluded to, you reach a lot of the kind of, kind of pinnacles of things that you thought that were going to, so I think. Is it different for, for women then? I don't know. And you'd have to ask, a, you'd have to ask a woman this question, but I, but I think. I think we tick off all the lists that we like when you're a young person, you're like, okay, get settled down, get married, have kids, da 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 da. And you tick off all these things and you're like, actually, I should feel really ecstatic and happy now. I've completed there's something life. still missing. You know, I've completed the game of life, but yeah. there's something still missing. And I think what jars a lot of us guys is that what do you do when you hit that point and you're like, actually, I've got another 20 or 30 years to our attire. Okay, so so this is kind of no man's land is, is this a bigger problem then. now than it was for our parents then i don't know because like a parents generation would have been doing their job their jobs almost for their entire lives i don't think it was kind of i don't think it was something that was questioned then but i certainly think in terms of my dad's generation you know people talk about the midlife crisis and someone having an affair or going off and buying a red sports car or yeah. buying a Harley Davidson motorbike. That's kind of, that's kind of how they say it kind of manifests itself. Uh, I think there's more information now in terms of, you know, relationships and stuff. And I think that like, when I think of the baby boomer generation, people that have been married many, many years, they sort of say happily married and you sort of, you're like, mm, are you happily married or are you kind of endured this after a certain I guess point? happily married and being happy are not quite the same thing though, maybe. Yeah, I think there's a distinction between it and that's a serious kind of that's a serious kind of rabbit hole to get <laughs> to go down. But I don't know, like when you said about would would women say say the same? 
I don't think women have a walk in the park either, uh, really, because I think there's been some seismic shifts in in terms of how, in terms of the expectations as to as to what women should and yeah, yeah, yeah. Sh- how they should live their lives. And I, and I don't think that for either men or women, it's kind of particularly rosy these days. Um, now, the, re- the reason I asked that is because you, you meant you, you kept alluding to men and I, and I assume that's because that's where you're focusing yeah. work-wise, but I yeah. didn't know if it was men were actually having different issues or, or not. I th- yeah, it's, it's, where my, it's where my focus is, so that's where I see it the most. Okay. But having said that, I also think that there is, there is also... A growing amount of pressure on women to be to 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 live their their lives in a certain way, uh, and like I'll give you an example. When my wife gave up work for a period of time, um, when my eldest was at primary school, my uh, my second arrived, she knocked work on the head until my second went to, to primary school, and that was a decision we made just because uh, it worked out better for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I remember at the time, some career women within our circle of friends, kind of like, they looked on in astonishment, like, how can you just, how can you not be going to work for like a few years sort of thing? And, yeah. I, and I think that in, in terms of women, I think there is there is a pressure on women to, to, to kind of conform in the same way as there is a pressure on men to conform. And I think that we need to accept that some women really want to pursue a career. Some women might want to do part-time, but some women, they've thought about nothing um, more important in their lives than becoming a mum and being a stay-at-home mum. So so I think that we, we have to be careful um, not to kind of pigeonhole women into saying, actually, you need to be this or you need to be that, because it, it's different for everyone, you know, and I, yeah. and I think that... I think this pressure to conform has has casualties on both the male and female sides right now, particularly in the modern world. And and also housing costs, you know, I was talking to someone about this recently. The house I was brought up in, my dad bought in 1980 for 17K, which, yeah. was, which is about what he was earning as a yearly salary then. You know, yeah. that ha- when I checked some checks on Zoopla the other day, that house was sold recently for 750k now i don't know how many, i don't know many guys or couples that are on 750k no. but that has a practical knock-on impact as to like whether or not a woman has to work and i think a lot of women now have to work in order to contribute to to the household um you know to, to the household income in order to have have a house and have housing whereas i don't think that was as much of an issue say say 40 years ago because i think it was it was more of a choice i think then than probably what it is now um yeah i hundred i mean even childcare costs now compared to when we were kids right i mean yeah. i can't remember i'm sure i saw <coughs> excuse me i'm sure i saw some stat the other day that average salary and the average childcare cost is like 80 percent or something yeah which is just ludicrous really it's a whole for for a lot of couples. It's the whole of the lower couples, the, the yeah. sort of the, the lowest earner's salary. Um, sorry, didn't mean to say lower couple. I mean lowest earner's yeah, salary. Yeah. So basically, you know, if you only if one of you is only thirty grand a year and your childcare costs are two grand plus a month, all of that is going on childcare costs, basically. So yeah, um, I'm just gonna. I, 
just take you back. So you, you were telling the story about your father passing away and you joined, you were telling your journey, right? So your father passed away and you joined this brotherhood. And then I kind of interrupted you and we went down a bit of a rabbit hole. Where, 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 did, right. where did you go from there then? So you joined this group. I'm just trying to get to where we are now so I can... No, that's fine. So, yeah, so I joined that group and it was, it was in the US. So I was on there for like 18 months, but it was transformative is, a, is, is the bottom line. So because on a weekly basis, I would sit down with 10 other guys uh, that asked me about my the plan that I was following in terms of like, so we broke our... So, so we made a like a vision statement, which was where we wanted our, our lives to be going. Okay. And then in each of these areas, we that would be broken down into 90 day plans. So we'd have, so, and then we'd on our weekly calls, I would be, I would be held to account as to whether I'd done the things that I said I was going to do as part of my 90 day plan. How comfortable so did you feel doing that? Like really uncomfortable. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> really uncomfortable to begin with, because like, um, because from an egocentric point of view, like if, we're not used to people calling us out on stuff that we haven't done. And, no. and, and uh, uh, at first it, it's really, really uncomfortable. But then again, having said that it's really focuses your mind because if you're trying to do something and you know, that if you don't do it, you've got to explain to someone why you haven't done it. You know, that, that, that focuses the mind somewhat, but the, the outcome of that was that over the period of time that I was on that uh, group, my life changed dramatically in a number of different areas in in terms of like my my um my physical health got better i was looking after my mental health a lot better uh, and i and my awareness of of the control i had over different aspects of my life began to began to change and and all of these things that i thought were kind of set in stone weren't so much yeah um you you talked again coming back to your recent bike ride that you did you, you mentioned to me about how it expanded, I think, what you thought was possible for yourself. And I think that when you're in an environment where expanding what you think is possible for yourself is a normal thing, yeah, uh, that normalizes you beginning to challenge what you do think is possible for yourself. And you're like, hang on a minute, the kind of sky's a, the sky's a limit. Uh, it takes you out of your comfort zone, life. doesn't it, I suppose? Yeah, and I think that if your peer group is such that yeah, they're very safe and they don't like to do anything off piste or do anything that's kind of might rock the boat or, uh, and this is a kind of, again, a ch- coming back to a tribal thing. You know, if you were, if you did something that was out of the ordinary from an evolutionary point of view, that could l- lead to you being cast out from the tribe and then dying yeah. a, a slow, uh, unhappy death. But I think that because this is still so hardwired into us, we get, we get kind of stuck in these ruts and, uh, but that that period of time being on that brotherhood made a massive difference to me, and and that's kind of what inspired me to start a podcast, the Guild of Dads podcast, uh, and then start working with guys and and build a community for for dads that were into loosely termed self development. I call it dad improvement rather than self improvement. Dad improvement. Um, but I think the reason being is I think when you become a dad, I think that it does shift your perspective because all of a sudden you're not just responsible for yourself you're responsible for your kids but i think it it also shines a light back on you because you see aspects of yourself and your children um and you realize that they're soaking up like a sponge everything you do and that you might not necessarily be able to control how they turn out but you can 
control the example that you set to them and how you you know you that your you are that you and their mother are the strongest reference points they have in their life as to how they want to be as uh, how they want to be as adults and how they're going to turn out as adults because for sure most dads I speak to you know some negative aspects of them they realize that actually those negative aspects they learn from their own parents so yeah. it's it's a big reflection point but i think you i think you you need to allow fatherhood to be a reflection point in your own self development i think you do 100% I, it's, it's quite thought provoking stuff and it's something that we take we think about a lot like even just from an like an exercise basis like you know watching uh, our kids watching us exercise like so we've got bought a treadmill for the for the for the gym and my daughter wants to walk on the treadmill. Like so if she sees me and she's like, Daddy, I wanna go and she'll sit now. I've got my bike set up next to it. So I'll ride my bike. I mean I haven't done it for a while now, but I'll ride my bike and she'll walk on the treadmill. And it's little things like that, like I don't know, without going too deep, you sort of see some kids knocking around town with their parents. And you just think, oh, you know, you sort of feel a bit for them because they are, they just copy everything you do, right? Everything you do, and it's good things and the bad things. If you do more bad things than good things, then you're in a bit of of shtick. Yeah, yeah. But it's a a good thing, I think, that, because when you get the awareness of it and when you, like, I I hear guys say, oh, uh, my upbringing never did me any harm. And then you and and then that and then and then in the next breath they go, oh, I wish I wasn't shouting at my kids so much and whatever. And you're like, okay. So where did you learn that then? Yeah. Oh, my dad, my dad. Whenever we were playing up, he used to just he used to he used to let rip on us and start slamming doors and throwing stuff around and whatever. And then he'd storm off in his car and stuff and that. And then you sort of go, so do you still think your upbringing didn't do you any harm? And then the penny drops. Because they're like, ah, yeah. And and when we talk about harm, we don't, you know, this isn't a case of, you know, being being physically or mentally abused. It's those subtle things that you've learned from your parents as a, as a way to deal with things, mm. you know. And it could be even as simple as, you know. Your well, you're, so you're a similar sort of age to me, right? So when, when, kid, when we were kids, smacking was a, a like, a standard operating procedure, right? It's what, you know, it was, yeah. and the, for me, it was always like, you wait till your dad gets home. Yeah, definitely. There was a fear there, like, it was total fear, like, you know, and it's hard, I, the thing is, I, I mean, you probably know this better than me, right? I mean, you, your kids are older, you've obviously been around other dads more. Like, I do find it hard, right? Because my kids, like every other kid, no doubt, they know how to push buttons and they know how to like really, and I find myself, I mean, I, you know, I'm not going to stand sit here and say I'm the perfect parent. I am not. And I have shouted at my daughters several, loads of times. And there are times I've shouted at them and I've instantly regretted it. And I'm like, fuck, like, oh. But on the flip side of that is, it's like, it's, I don't know. I'm not making excuses because it is what it is. But sometimes it is tough, right? As you know, you've that ex- external things happened and it's like, oh, you know, and then they start playing up and it's like, oh my God. 
it's almost like they can sense when to do it, just when to <laughs> get optimum kind of annoyance. Yeah, I, but I think there is a the, the what springs from what you've said there is it's it's really a case of reflection rather than perfection. So mm. we're not going to get it right all the time. In fact, most of the time you're not going to get it right. Yeah. But I think if so long as you have that awareness and you're reflecting on what happened and what went wrong or what what you could have done differently then it means that next time around you can maybe course correct and do it slightly differently yeah uh, and 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 one of the th- i did a post on linkedin yesterday and it was around this notion of uh, you know parents dads often think oh i'm a i'm not very good i'm not a very good dad or i'm not a very good parent or whatever and then you sort of so okay so according to whose standards mm. you know and according to what and and i think the, the difficulty is, is we all want to be really good parents and stuff but there is a kind of disconnect between how we want to be versus how we are and also you you've got to kind of juggle it with work and other responsibilities and stuff that you've got which often cause you stress and and, and pressure and and whatever so but I think once you've got that awareness and you've reflected on things, then you can begin to see, okay, so now I know that's where there's an issue. How can I change that? So for instance, many dads will get in from work or they'll finish work and whatever, and they'll be on their phones when they should be, you know, interacting face to face with their kids. Yeah. So this, this logical thing is, well, how, so what could I do to change that situation? Well, if you're coming in from work, you you're driving home from work, you could put your phone in the glove compartment of your car for the first couple of hours after you get in the door. Or if you're working from home, you could go and put your your phone in the garage or in the shed or some, yeah, yeah, somewhere yeah. where it's out of hand reach for two or three hours. And after maybe seven days of doing that, you'll notice that you're how much more present you are of your kids and your wife in the evening and and and, and also how they're responding to you differently. So, but it's it, that all starts with that awareness of hang on a minute, I'm looking at my phone all the time when I should be like spending time with my kids and they're not getting 100% of me. Yeah. It's funny, it's one of those things you don't really think about, but I'd kind of love to know, you know, what, what your kids sort of interpret it as. Mm. Your phone is more important than me. Yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I, I heard someone say the other day actually that all kids want is to be talked to. And if you can talk to your kids, that's like one of the biggest life skills you can have as a parent. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's something I say, which is kids want your presence, not your presence. Yeah. Uh, and cheesy, it's but true. Tr- it's cheesy, and it is, but it, but it is, but it is true because, like, both, both my kids, when I've spent time with them one to one, I notice in the sort of twenty-four to thirty-six hours afterwards, there is a completely different. Um, vibe in our kind of relationship with with one another they're a lot kind of warmer to me and stuff and um even to the extent that my like this is going to sound really funny but dog owners will get this as well like even when i take my dog out for like if i take him for a walk in the woods i'm like the best thing since sliced bread for about 24 hours afterwards so it's not just human beings animals as well they kind of there is a two-way interaction that goes on there which we don't really kind of tune into that much but it, it definitely is there Without a shadow of doubt. Do you know what? I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to, I'm going to experiment putting my phone away 
for a week and I'm going to let you know what the impact yeah. is. Let me know. Post it on post it on Twitter and let me know. I will do because I, I tell you, I, it's kind of strange. Like my, so I've got two, two daughters. Uh, one's going to be five in a couple of weeks. One's two and a half. They are very much, mummy is like the um, the main person in the house, right? If they're sick, it's mummy. If they're crying, it's mummy. And it's, you know, it's a little bit heartbreaking sometimes because you want to do that. Even if they get up in the middle of the night, it's like, so my wife and I take it in turns with the baby monitor because obviously, you know, sleep and whatever. But then if I go in in the night, if my little one's crying, it's rare, but the times it happens, then no, no, I want mummy, I want mummy. And then she'll have a meltdown because mummy's not, it's just like, oh my God. And it is a bit heartbreaking. And I know it's not all about me, but it's like, I want to be there for them and I want to support them. And I want to take the load off my wife as and when. And um, I can't remember what I was going with this, but yeah, so trying to get that um, course correct is is tough. And maybe maybe the phone's the answer, getting rid of the phone. Hmm. Or one and of the answers it, at least. Yeah, and there's, I mean, I interviewed a, evolutionary anthropologist called uh, Dr. Animation who's written a really good book called I think it's called Life of Dad um, so I'd thoroughly recommend it but in it she talks about she gets quite excited about a uh, a pair bonding hormone called beta endorphine okay and basically in the west so in developing areas of the world where dad is around a lot more uh, this feature isn't hardwired into us but in the western world where typically dad is out for at work for a number of hours of the day and then you have this short window between getting in from work and bedtime uh, evolution has hardwired this kind of this response into us which is that when we engage in like rough and tumble play or even uh, play and uh, doing different things with our kids in that little evening that little in, uh, window of time in the evening it triggers a massive response of what's called beta endorphin, which is which are pair bonding chemicals. Okay, it's like a, it's almost like a speed, it's almost like speed dating for connection, almost. Okay, um, and and it's a particular quirk of, uh, of, of of fathers and kids in the West, but it's worth remembering that there are a number of things that kind of are going on on a physiological level yeah. when we're spending time with our kids uh, in the evenings and stuff, and that can be simple as like playing a game or building something or but just spending one-on-one time with them uh and and the thing is is dad's role different to mum's as well like um john gray the author of men are from mars women from venus when i spoke to him about this he's like dad's role in a completely different way so whereas mums will kind of be like right when we go out have we got the bag have we got this have we got that have we got that have we got that have we got that and it's like going on a military uh, operation in the Brecon Beacons. Uh, Dad's like, come on, let's just, let's, he just takes his wallet and his car keys. Come on, let's just go. Oh, we've forgotten coats. Oh, it doesn't matter. Oh, we've not got lunch with us. Don't worry, we'll go get that, something that, in the cafe. That is so accurate in my household. It's not even quite as funny. <laughs> my, my, wife diff- will, my wife will laugh when she hears that bit. But it's a different way of, it's a different way of rolling as a parent, you know. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes mums get like oh what why can't you be more organized and we're like actually it doesn't matter the kids are having a good time you know and yep. so it's important to kind of respect that, that that mums and dads they just roll differently when it comes to kids they do um talking to kids what did you want to be when you grew up 
probably a Top Gun pilot, I reckon. Um, no, I think I wanted, yeah, I did want it to be a pilot, but I, but I, I know that school mathematics wasn't my strongest <laughs> point. In fact, far from it. I got a D the first time and I had to retake it. And um, so I knew that kind of if you wanted to do stuff like that, you had to be pretty strong at, strong at maths. So, uh, so Maverick had get... quite the impact on a, a generation, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And that's why I was so excited went to watch, to see the uh, to see the Maverick film and then just so disappointed when my wife said to me that she'd never seen the first film. And I was like, <gasps> what? Really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the amount of guys I speak to have said exactly the same thing. Their wives have said, I've never seen the first film. We're like, what? You've not seen the first Top Gun film? But I don't know. Is there an equivalent with film that all women see that most men have probably not seen there must be dirty dancing surely. probably yeah i think i've i've, I've watched that under duress a number of times <laughs> <laughs> no do you know it's funny I, I kind of wanted to be i wanted to be a fighter pilot for a while but totally influenced by that film <laughs> that's a funny story one of my friends i think when we were in the fifth year at school they had this talking of careers tutor. They had this weird thing which would basically you you you'd answer other questions and it would give you an occupation. Yeah. And one of my well. mates at school, he he came into the class smiling one day, and I was like, "What is it?" And he's like, oh, "I got my results back from this test or whatever it was." He was like, "It says that I'm going to be a shepherd." <laughs> <laughs> and what does he do uh, now? Oh God knows! I've lost contact with him. Um, but yeah, he said he was going to be a shepherd. I think the last time I spoke to him, he was at um, he was at Portsmouth University. So I don't, I, I'm sure that he wasn't studying a degree in um, shepherding. shepherding. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's part of me that thinks that would be a terrible job these days. Actually, yeah, there's that. It's kind of quite worrying how middle-aged men are like actually. I'd like nothing more than to be a shepherd, and there's Mooching probably about the shepherds and a dog. Yeah, and there's probably you'll probably have a get some um, get get someone here that listens to your podcast who is a shepherd, and they're going to write into you, and they're going to go, "You don't know how difficult <laughs> it is being a shepherd." I get up at four o'clock in the morning, and I get cancelled by the shepherding world. Yeah, exactly. Um, tell me something about you that not many people know. Something about me that not many people know. Uh, I used to do cycle racing when I was younger, and I raced against Bradley Wiggins, who is a former Tour de France winner. In fact, I beat him once. That was only one. I, I've only beaten him once. Usually, I say race against him, but he used to kind of like, he was so fast, he was like a motorbike, and he just used to disappear off up the road in front. But yeah, awesome absolutely awesome to um because of, of course at that time he was just a very good local rider we know uh, and and also at a national level no one r- really thought he was going to go on and win the Tour de France but he did so yeah that's a pretty cool uh pretty cool thing so did you see so did you grow up near him obviously no I lived in Bromley in southeast London okay he lived in I think Maida Vale um so what is that north north oh did he i didn't know london. that yeah northwest london um and so so a lot of the races around the kind of southeast you'd you'd you'd, you'd end up at the same races and so the, 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 the typically we used to race 
uh, somewhere called Eastways, which was over near Lee Valley Park, which was flattened for the Olympic Park in the end. Um, but there was also a velodrome at Hearn Hill, which still is. Yeah. Um, just trying to think, the local racing circuits. There was so we'd race at Crystal Palace. Uh, on so a what, what age night. was this? So this was schoolboy, so that would be up to sixteen, and then as a. And he junior, was that which, good at that age, was he? Yeah, he was a very good schoolboy, and and but got very very good as a junior. So which is sixteen to eighteen, and then I think he turned pro at around about eighteen, nineteen, something like that. Um, so he was he was he was he was pretty good then. Uh, but we'd but there was different races around the sort of southeast that we all used to do and stuff, and yeah, it was. It was that was when cycling was an underground sport. Yeah, it yeah. wasn't. It wasn't as popular as it was post twenty twelve sort of thing. No, is it um, Boardman and came along, didn't he? he? Sort of. He was the first person to really sort of change it up a little bit. Was it? Was there any any chance of you sort of taking it beyond just a hobby? No, I mean, I had. I, I was I was okay at cycling. I wasn't great at it. Um, uh, there was guys in my peer group who are a lot better than me. I was certainly never going to, I never thought I was going to turn pro uh, or anything like that. I, I kind of, I enjoyed it, but I wasn't, the, I wouldn't say that I was the best in the world at it. Um, do you still cycle much today? Now and again, I do now and again. Uh, but it's, it's an interesting sport cycling because I, I love it on the one hand in the sense that it's very romantic and it's, you know, it's you're in awe of how fit these guys and stuff are. But I think it's interesting how there is still a very murky underbelly to yeah. professional cycling. And I think people have kind of, there's been attempts to clean it up. And there's, and I think that's probably the same for all professional sport. But I think there is still a murky underbelly, which, you know, when I speak to guys who I used to race with at under 23 level, you know, some of the stuff they tell me that used to go on in Europe and stuff. And that was like in the late 90s early 2000s and stuff so yeah I, it's a beautiful sport but on the same on on but on the one hand but on the other hand there is it's undoubtedly a sport that's still got issues i would say definitely did you watch that um that documentary i think it was on netflix uh is it icarus icarus yeah where he cheated the blood passport the program. russian guy yeah i mean it's kind of like you watch one of those and you think you think, oh, it must be fiction, must be like, you know, but it's not, it's just, I don't know, it's kind of incredible really that that sport, it's interesting what you said about other sports being tainted with the same brush, I, I don't think they are necessarily, I think if you ask most people in the streets what is, I think cycling would always come up as a, like, as a sport where people think that sort of stuff's going on as opposed to most others. Mm. Yeah. And it's kind and of mad that that's still the case, even like, I guess even all these years after, probably Lance Armstrong's probably done the most damage to that sport, hasn't he, weirdly? Yeah, and I think the problem is as well is the, is the athlete biological passport, the blood passport, that was meant to kind of create, that was meant to put an end to it so the authorities could see where, the, where there's abnormalities in, yeah. in, in, in the bloods. Um, that that was kind of hailed as a turning point, but obviously Armstrong proved that actually that could be circumvented because I think the the guy um, I can't remember what the name of the he was on the um, the biological 
the blood passport program for the UCI, the, the sports, sports governing body. Yeah. But, but he basically said that when Armstrong made his comeback, he, he thinks that he was still blood doping. Now, he was subject to the athlete biological blood, you know, the, the, the blood passport system. So his blood values would have been in theory scrutinized. So which is what the guy in Icarus says, that you can circumvent the, 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 the blood passport program if you've got the right garden, guidance and the right tools and the right skills and doctor helping you. So uh, and let's not forget some of these top guys are on millions and millions of euros of contract a year. So they've got the resources to do it if they really want to. I just didn't, I, I, I think where it's at now is there is, there is a level that they know that they can go up to and not beyond. And mm. I think most of these guys are going up to that level and obviously the therapeutic use exemptions is enabling to, for them to kind of maybe go beyond it and push it a bit further. And so, um, but it's a, it's a really difficult question because some people were like, well, well what, what's the answer like in, in, for doping in sport? Should we just say jungle rules? They can take whatever they want. And if they die, that's on them. Yes. No, there's, there's so many different moral and ethical arguments to that discussion. And, and, and Did how you would you cycling? Like, will you watch the big events on telly and stuff? Yeah, I will do. Yeah, and and, and, and there's a, there's the knowledge. I mean, obviously, I don't know, but the, you you obviously think there's still stuff going on. Does that change how you watch it? Does it does it? Bother uh, it, you? it 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 doesn't in like like you like people sort of think that you're going to take drugs and you're going to turn from a cart horse you from a cart horse into a racehorse. That's not really the case because okay, some of these guys are still. Uh, taking performance enhancing substances but they're still having to train a hell of a lot you know it's not like mm -hmm. they're just gonna you know these are still super super athletes and they're still training you know pretty much every day of the week hours and hours in the saddle and stuff so it's not like you but know, one might argue they can do that because of the uh the drugs right yeah and if everyone's on it then it is a level playing field <laughs> how yeah. to to what extent everyone is on it uh is still a mute point, but like for instance, one of the arguments that people have come up with is that there's still the times up. Some of the, the you know the the super climbs in the Tour de France are still very very fast. The average speeds for races are still very very fast, and 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 people will put this down to oh yeah, well it's because they've got carbon fiber bikes now and they're wearing aero crash hats and they're they're doing this, they're doing ice baths and but. That might explain some of it, but it's for a sport that is allegedly meant to have got cleaner. It doesn't seem to be getting any slower. Put it that way. So but that's that's kind of why I'm asking, like, if it's enjoyable to watch because it's almost like you you kind of watch it, but you know that actually there's stuff going on. So it's not. I don't know. It's just it's all it's like weird. Yeah. I do enjoy it. I do enjoy it. I mean, I don't watch as much as I used to. I watch the classics. I like the Northern European classics, like the Cobbles, like Paris-Roubaix, Tour of Flanders. Um, occasionally, I watch a few of the Alpine stages in the Tour, but I don't sit there for hours on end like watching bike racing so much these days because don't have as much time to do it. Uh, but I still enjoy the spectacle of it, and like, like I still enjoy the racemanship and stuff. And yeah. you know, uh, you know, if there's a break and it's hanging on to to the last. To the last kilometer or whatever there was a race in the summer i can't remember what it was uh, that i watched and this guy 
went off with a few kilometers to go and he held off the, held off the bunch to the line uh, i think it was in the tour i think it was one of the northern stage in the tour and that was a brilliant ride like i love watching rides like that where a guy's clicked off and he's just held off the you know the heaving bunch to, to the last meters that is so exciting to watch on tv and if you're actually there in person as well like the speed at which they come through is just something else so well, as someone who's very recently learned to ride in a group and learned the benefits of riding in a group, like hearing something like that's incredible because I also know like riding on your own, the, the, the huge difference or disadvantage that is to riding in a group of people chasing. I mean, he must have been superhuman, that guy. Yeah, yeah. And it, and, and it's, a, it's, just a, it's just a spectacle of it. Like, I, I, I love, like, I've been to see Paris Bay a couple of times, one of the, the, the what is arguably the big, arguably the biggest monument so that's i think it's 170 something miles of which 60 of it is on cobblestones but it's just so exciting when you kind of you can hear the helicopters in the distance the race is getting closer and then they flash um, past you into <laughs> yeah i'm i'm getting like the hairs on the back of my neck go just talking about it but like for a cycling nut like watch like you you see the helicopters in the distance and then you see the dust cloud if it's a dry dry year you see the dust cloud getting closer and closer and closer yeah and then all of a sudden you see the gendarmes the bikes coming through and then then the then the cars come through and 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 there's and with cobblestones there's this particular rumble in the tires makers are going over the car tires so it's the car tires are coming over and then all of a sudden you'll you'll see the 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 lead car in front of the brake and there'll be two or three i don't know however many guys there are in the brake coming through and they're tanned because they've obviously been down riding all the races in the in the southern hemisphere yep. they're tanned they're covered in dust and whatever their bikes are bouncing all over the all over the place there's this big cavalcade of motorbikes and stuff behind them it's just absolutely brilliant and then and then obviously the next group comes through exactly the same thing as well sort of thing it's just a really exciting experience so I'd, I'd recommend even if you're not into cycling just to go and just to go and see it like a big, big race because it's just so exciting for me anyway. <laughs> I mean, you paint quite a picture. It's pretty cool. Um, so obviously not being the next Bradley Wiggins and I kind of feel like you might have answered this question already, but tell me one of the most pivotal moments in your life or the what is the most pivotal moment in your life? I think it... I, I think it I think it was my old man's passing, definitely, definitely. Uh, it was, it was, it was, it was tough, and it was very sad. But at the same time, it was kind of it. I I allowed it to kind of change me in the way that. Do you know? It's funny. I did. I sorry to interrupt you. We had this. It's funny how death, as obviously shit as it is at the time when you reflect back on it very often opens your mind to things that you would or or makes you think in a way that you hadn't necessarily thought of before or causes you to think about your own life and actually okay and i've had it myself very recently um and the way i look at it is it's, it's kind of like the most positive thing you can take away from someone dying yeah and I, and I like going to funerals, and this is going to sound really weird. Uh, I went to my 
step-grandmother's funeral uh, a few months back. She lived to 103, so quite a good inning. Wowzers. Um, but in our normal lives, we're kind of quite busy going about doing stuff and yep. getting on with the business of life and stuff. But when you kind of stand outside, there's that bit where you kind of stand outside the chapel or the church or wherever you're going to go, and you kind of file in and you sit down and there's the order of service and then people, the, the uh, whoever is the, taking the service, a minister or whoever it's going to be, they start talking about the person's life. And, and for me, that's why... I enjoy funerals because they kind of reignite that thought process in my head as to what does this mean for me and, and how am I living my life? The minister like a reality check, isn't it? Yeah, and then and then someone will talk, start talking about the eulogy, what they loved about the person, what um, what were the things that were the memories they shared with them, and, and 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 I think that begins to spark that process in your brain again. Mm. Um, and I think you need these these points in your these points to to trigger these inflection trigger points in your life. I think is the word I'm looking for. Yeah, um, I've had it in the last few months where my my daughter's been suffering from an eating disorder, and we've been struggling to get help from uh, the NHS and stuff, and one of the sort of cliches you see sometimes on social media is the point at which your life is when you realize that the point at which your life changes is is when you realize nobody's coming to save you. And it sounds like a cliche, but it is so true. It is so true. Mm. Like the last few months has been, has been hell. And there's been times where, where I've been so disappointed that nobody is coming to save me. But the point is that stuff has changed when I've actually right. Okay this is on me to sort this out. This is on, no one's going to come and do this for me. It's down to me to do it. And it's, it's hard. It's a really hard, uh, sad, hopeless, demoralizing place to be. But on the other side of that, it's also a very empowering, uh, courageous, grit, resilience building place to be as well, because you can't blame anyone else. You just got so, okay, well, this is a situation as it is. Yeah. I've got to deal with it uh, and I've got to deal with it in the best way that I know that might not be the right way, but I'm going to deal with it the best way I know how to. So, um, so I think there is, I think the, the inflection reflection pinch points of life are really important. No, I agree. And I think, yeah, as you alluded to, like we're always so busy with everything going on all the time that actually taking that moment to stop and, it's almost like a little reset, isn't it? And go, right, a refocus point. Yeah. Um, I think I think you're bang on the money, actually. And it's just, it's kind of a shame that these really shit situations have to happen for that result to, to occur, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like you, sometimes it's like, I don't know whether it's like in, if you, you know, Buddhists talk about enlightenment, these stages of in, enlightenment, um, whether you get to this point where you, but it's almost like you want to bottle that feeling up and be able to take it on a daily basis just to keep yourself on that level. But life naturally begins to go back to normal sort of thing until well, do you, know you say that. I can't, I'm going to kick myself now because I can't remember. I saw it on Twitter. Someone shared something. I think it was only yesterday. And if it was you, I'm going to be really embarrassed, but I can't remember who it was. 
And um, they shared a thing where they set an alarm on their phone every day. And this person had three things they were working on. I think one was their what like their body, their physical health. One was their um, diet, and one was I think it was work, but kind of doesn't matter. And he set three alarms to happen every day, and put a little annotation under it. So the alarm went off at nine fifty three, and it was like, "Remember, you are trying to um, get strong for whatever." And then, like you know, a couple of hours late, so it was. I'll remember when when you're feeling hungry not to succumb to this chocolate bar because you know you're trying to get eat better, and it's kind of the same methodology, right? It's like trying to remember reinforce these things, and it said that you know even for like you just get your alarm goes off, you look at your phone, it's like oh okay, it's like even for three seconds, it's just that gentle nudge to remind you to do this thing, and I I would try and find it and put it in the show notes after because I was kicking myself if it was I did like it so it should be easy to find but. Yeah, it's remaining present. I think it comes back to remaining present. And 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 I think the thing that we have to wrestle with is that, like, sometimes people say, well, what would you do today if it was your last day on earth, if you mm. knew you were going to die tomorrow? And you're like, okay, I'll be doing this, I'll be doing that, whatever and stuff. But you can't live your life every day like that because no. it just wouldn't work. And so there's You'd have that. No money for a start. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> You'd be bankrupt. Like, oh, okay, I've got to try and live this day again tomorrow. Yeah. So that there's there's a kind of weird balance between that, uh, between so, so 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 kind of living your life like it's the last day on earth versus living your life that where you're kind of grounded and you're you have a degree of awareness and stuff. And and mm. I think it's wrapping those two things up with just living a normal everyday life so it's 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 how you kind of and i think that's a challenge for everyone is to how you begin to kind of grapple with these things because like they've done they've there's there is a book i think that was written by someone that's in i think palliative care asking people on their kind of yeah. deathbeds what is the things they regret the most and that's it you know it's usually the main there's there's just four or five main things you know I wish I hadn't worried about what people thought of me. I'd wish I'd um, done that project or business thing that I'd that I'd always wanted to do. And so there's 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 I think there's four or five that are the main ones that come up. Um, but again, everyday life kind of we run away, we forget those things, you know. Um, we do, and, and life goes quick, doesn't it? I mean, again, it's another cliche, but as you get older, it seems like christmas nips around every couple of months or you know if you've got kids that's a big one for me but since i had kids is just how quickly they grow up which is probably one of the biggest parenting cliches there is but it is so true and life does seem to get faster as you get older so trying to have these little breaks and reminders is important i think but i think it that that kind of circles really nicely back to sort of what we were talking about at the beginning of our discussion insofar as kind of midlife and fatherhood and stuff uh, there's a there's a brilliant book that i've read called james hollis the examined life and he talks about how in the first half of life it's very much about ego and the attainment of things and haves and wants yeah whereas in the second part of life it's kind of more of like a soul journey and i think that like like for me uh okay 
money is important because it enables you to do the things that you want to do. But I think secondary to that is like it's more important for me to create memories going forward than it is. And this and this kind of ties in with that, you know, yeah. what do you wish you'd spent more time doing in your life, uh, you know, when you're on your deathbed? Well, you're going to want probably more time spending time with the people that you love and, and whatever. And like we were talking about caravans, I think, before we came on. So we got, a, as a family, we got a caravan last year. And it was a second-hand one. It wasn't a really expensive one. But that little vehicle enables us to create more memories than, than anything else in the last year or so because we've been so many different places on it and been on so many different adventures and sat in it and played games and whatever because sometimes you don't have Wi-Fi on campsites and things. Yeah. So it's little things like that which stupid. It's like a, you know. The best, that's, that's often the root of a good story, right, is something spur of the moment or not expe- inexpensive or you know that's that's the things that people talk about for years to come like the stupid things you know oh so and so did this and that's you know we barely laugh till like they're very rarely things that are super contrived or super expensive or it's just i don't know so it's just interesting you way you, you sort of led that conversation with this caravan you go it wasn't very expensive and it's, but this is what it's done is it's kind of amazing how you can create stories without having to not, not put a lot of effort in, but they sort of come around easier when you when you don't put effort in. You know, when you're yeah. not sort of planning stuff and, and trying to make the stories happen. Yeah, and a good example of this is when we were away in August, I'd taken my beach fishing rod because we were at a campsite by the beach down near uh, Pevensey Bay. And... Um, so I said to the kids, let's let's see whether we can catch something off the beach. So we went down to the tackle shop, got the stuff, went to the beach. And I didn't have any expectations of catching anything because a few people have said to me, beach fishing is difficult. So um, anyway, after a few casts, uh, three mackerel. And then after another few casts, a couple more mackerel. So, um, so I take these. So it's really exciting for the kids and stuff. We've got all... You know, got these mackerel the dog tries to eat one as we pulled it in and then we then we gutted them and cooked them on the barbecue in the evening and again that's something that was kind of like apart from the your kids the will lure, remember that story the lures, until the, story the day of they die right fish, yeah catching fish off the beach and then cooking it that evening and eating it you know just like and it was it was it was didn't cost anything but mm. the 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 memory impact is like priceless oh man it is yeah, they will. That'd be that'd be something they talk about. That'd be on your eulogy. They'll talk. They probably tell yeah, that exactly. story. Yeah, hopefully. Um, tell me one of or some of some of the most valuable lessons you've learned in life. This is one I've spoken to a few people about recently, and um, it was my first boss, and he said to me, "He said to me, if you do anything wrong, uh, you might have to mark this as explicit." He said, "If you fuck up." Just tell me that you fucked up, he goes, because then we can sort it out. He said, but don't try and cover it up. Don't try and um, wriggle your way out of it. Don't try and lie your way out of it. He said, just tell me what's happened, and then we can kind of sort it out. So that was the first bit of really good advice I had. But the second bit of good advice was, if you don't know the answer to something, then admit that you don't know the answer, but that you can go and find out the answer and then come back to someone and let them let them know sort of thing. 
And I think both of those are really kind of quite important lessons, not just for young people in the workplace, but also I think just for every, it's for anyone in general. We all try and blag our way through and think we know everything. Mm. And I think a sign of wisdom as you get older is actually knowing what you don't know yeah. more than what you do know. No, that's um, that's a pretty solid bit of takeaway for, my, <laughs> for most people. Um, younger people probably more more so. Yeah, I, I like stories like that because I think it's sometimes it's simple lessons and simple pieces of advice are often the best, aren't they? Yeah, and I think as well is I think that particularly in terms of that second one, knowing what you don't know. Yeah. And that being a sign of wisdom. If you look around us right now, I mean, you only have to look at the political situation at the moment. You know, a lot of this, a lot of the problems we see at the moment is because instead of people admitting what they don't know and going and finding out the answer or getting someone who does know the answer to advise them, they're just blagging it and pretending they know the answer. Mm-hmm. And where that comes from is a place of pride, is a place of hubris, is a place of arrogance. Uh, and unfortunately, these are virtues that have kind of permeated our public discourse and they've permeated our institutions to such an extent that, that, that things that are going badly wrong right now are often at the root of this, I don't know the answer. Um, but instead of admitting that I don't know the answer, I'm going to pretend as if I do know the answer and then I'm going to get it catastrophically wrong as a result. At the risk of this turning into a political podcast, I think you're bang on the money there. And what I find really surprising is how these people end up in positions of the cabinet and how freely they change around these positions of the cabinet. Like one day you're so-and-so next day your chancellor you wouldn't have that in any other business right you wouldn't have like the cto go one day go oh do you know what you're going to be cmo this week and then cmo you're going to be uh head of um hr this week and hr manager you're going to be head of um you're going to be cto like it doesn't happen but for some reason in politics it does and i find it Mm. amazing like how that works when you take into account the gravitas of the decisions they're making and it blows yeah. my mind <laughs> it blows mine too and and i think and and, and we could do a whole podcast episode yeah, on this I, I, but but i think there is a lot of people i speak to kind of my age who have been like wait like when you see your parents you're like how did you get so cynical about stuff and then you get to kind of like yeah. you know your 40s and you're like oh god i've seen so many governments and they're all <laughs> as bad as each other sort of thing but I think at the bottom of this is I think democracy has stayed as it is in its current form for a long period of time. Yep. And I think in any other area of like when you do history at school, you learn about you learn about the reformers and how they reformed, you know, uh, the democratic and political system and stuff. And 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 you begin to sort of think, well, actually, maybe it's time to have a bit of reform now. Maybe we should build into this democratic framework more accountability. Maybe we should have a body of the public who oversee the behaviour of MPs. Maybe MPs should be sacked. Uh, maybe we should have a disciplinary procedure whereby they lose their perks and privileges if they don't 
behave in a certain way mm-hmm. you know and this is kind of what i would loosely term democracy version 2.0 and but the, the the crazy thing is with this chris is that many people are talking about this but the only people that can that would allow this to happen are the very people that don't want it to happen yeah exactly so many people at westminster have got a vested interest in democracy staying exactly as it is because it benefits them um but i I don't know whether in the i mean i've thought for the last probably 15 years that at some point there is going to be serious unrest in the uk and i think that the only way that kind of democracy version 2.0 will end up as a serious consideration is if enough people and i don't mean like extremists i don't mean climate change activists I mean, just normal people just actually say, right, look, enough we've had enough, enough of this. Yeah. We've had enough, and uh, and they take to the streets and and. Do you and, know what? I'm like you. I, I thought that I've been saying this for a few years about the sort of unrest. I th- we're on the brink of something, and it's amazed me it hasn't happened so far. And then um, I got this notification on my phone yesterday saying about, oh, you know, there's going to be power blackouts on the coldest days of the year, like. And I'm thinking to myself, Christ, we like it's 2022, and just like going back to you, what you're saying about history books, like it, that's the sort of thing you read about from you know when the wars were on, or like you, it's 2022. How are we having blackouts now? Yeah, are we not civilized enough that we can sort of work this out? And I just yeah, it kind of worries me what is going to be the catalyst because we've had so many bad things happen which could have been the catalyst and haven't been. I don't know, it just makes you think, God, what, what, what's going to be the straw that breaks the camel's back and actually sends people to the streets? But I don't know what it's going to be. I think, the, I think the thing is as well is I think that there is a... Um, I don't think it needs to actually even need to be civil unrest. I think it, be, it can be civil disobedience. Like, like I was talking to someone the other day, like if, the, if, if everyone in the UK decided that they were not going to pay their council tax for six months, yeah, that would actually that would actually cause a massive amount of inconvenience. And yeah, okay, you could say, oh yeah, there's going to be rubbish piling up and the streets aren't going to be fixed and whatever and stuff. But but I think like we've we've seen across the world these kind of, you know, you saw the Arab Spring and and, and these big movements all of a sudden galvanize and spread very fast. Mm. I think that actually that's, if you wanted to have kind of civil disobedience, I think that could, I, I think that kind of could maybe be the answer to get democracy version 2.0 on the table and i'm kind of talking hypothetically here but i think it reaches a point where where it does need to happen because it's not just westminster i think not i think westminster down to kind of central and local government and a lot of state institutions are run in a very accountability averse teflon way that (laughs) that that makes it very difficult to hold people accountable and I, and I think for the public we're looking at it now and we're thinking actually well hang on a minute we've paid all our taxes for all these years and we should we, we think that we should have this yet if you want to like my local council if you want to if you want to kind of try and complain to the local council about something well good luck with that yeah. let's put it that way so um but but I think this this creates a sense of dissatisfaction and i think it will at some point something's going to happen at some point i think it's a case of 
when, not if, I would say. So, so sorry to bring be such a bearer of bad news no, on your I, podcast, Chris. No, no, no. I, I mean, basically, needs someone to lead it, right? And it's kind of funny when when the, all the petrol prices were edging up to all sort of two pounds. I was thinking, why is someone not organising like boycotts of certain petrol stations? Like, if everyone said, "Oh, do you know, what? we're not going to go to BP." you know so you obviously still got to get petrol right so you can't boycott the whole system but if you boycott one then it forces them to make a decision and what every a few people i've had this conversation with like in my mind it seemed very simple right it seemed a very simple process you boycott bp or shell or whoever and if everyone does it then sooner or later they've got to go shit we've got to like do something and i understand there's more nuance to it than just the petrol stations right but the few people I talked to about it said the same thing. It needs someone to lead it and it needs someone to um, be the instigator. And the problem you get is as soon as someone comes that person, all the sort of government PR machines and the media jump in involved and they start like, you know, attacking. And it's, mm. it's kind of a weird world we're living in, right? Where you can't sort of stand yourself out too much if you, and you run the risk of, I don't know, yeah. getting called on things. Don't it's tough. above the parapet too much. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, I'm going to move on to the next question about superpowers. And I believe everyone has got a superpower of some description. What would you say is yours? Uh, conversation. I like conversation. I like talking with people. I like finding out about what people are about. Uh, and I think that conversation is very much a dying art these days in yeah. the sense of the way we kind of communicate. And uh, I would say definitely conversation is my superpower without a doubt that's a good answer i've not had anyone say that so far but it's fun we were me and my wife were talking about this a little while ago about um small talk and actually not many people do it these days and she said to me she said i she thinks i'm good at it but she goes she, i you know i see you chatting to people she goes like i can't do that i was like what do you mean you just chat to people you ask a question and then depending on what they answer you ask another question like it's kind of weird and good in one sense that you say it's a superpower but it's weird that you have to say it's a superpower do you know what i mean yeah yeah it is weird but that's probably the best thing i reckon so yeah okay um what topic is guaranteed to get you on your soapbox (laughs) we've already discussed kind of like uh government accountability i think i think kind of stemming on from that is probably the issue of blame actually because I think the two things are kind of hardwired and interlinked with each other. Okay. So I think we've got, again, I think as part of, it's, it's sort of linked to that accountability discussion. I think there is a tendency for a lot of people to blame other people these days rather than take responsibility for their kind of their own actions. Yeah. And, and, and we see it, we see it within the kind of woke and social justice movements with this, this notion of kind of trying to blame someone else for, for what's happening and i think the difficulty with blame is that it removes any agents or agency or a responsibility on the individual to change their situation because it's always like a kind of like a fallback position that, yep. you, that you can take uh, and, and i and uh, like everyone has their difficulties in life and everyone has things that are kind of have, have been difficulties for them and and I, and what I've noticed quite a lot now is that it's like, oh, actually, if 
if something horrible happens to you and you're within a social a certain social demographic uh that is somehow not as serious as as if you're in another social demographic yeah. you know and 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 yeah i think the i think the issue of blame is becoming is becoming a problem and uh like do you listen do you listen to jake humphrey's podcast Yes, I've listened to a couple of these podcasts. Actually. So he has yeah. this phrase which he talks about quite a lot on there, which I quite like, and he says it might not be your fault, but it is your responsibility. And it, and it, it's the same sort of thing. Like he's trying to say, like you know, you have to deal with it. It might not be. I think he's talking about blame, basically, in so, in some regards. But do you see it a lot in your sort of your community, your dad's community? I see it a lot in uh, not so much in my community, and because guys know what I'm about when they sign up to my community, and they know that I'm I'm not that kind of guy. And and if that's the kind of community they want, then they need to go somewhere else. But I certainly see it in a lot of dads' face, dad and men's Facebook groups on where where by it's something that I call helpless, helpless, hapless male syndrome, and uh, and. There's a psychologist, Martin Seligman, who has who coined the term learned helplessness. And 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 I think in some kind of groups that I see, there is very much a, a, an essence of learned helplessness whereby this is this is my life and it's happened because of my wife's uh, whatever, and you know, uh, and so they're looking to blame something for, for for how their life is rather than actually kind of taking responsibility for it. Yeah. And I think that in a lot of these communities, you have other men enabling that kind of mindset by, by you know, by kind of kind of piling in on it and actually say, uh, and, and enabling people to feel kind of helpless. And one of the things that I'm kind of, that's kind of crystallizing in my brain quite a lot in terms of the work I do is actually, right, how can we take men from a position of learned helplessness to learned empowerment? Yeah. And what I mean by that is, okay, there are things that are going to happen to us and we are going to experience bad mental health and we are going to experience crap times in our, in our lives. But how can we begin begin to transmute this into something empowering? And, and, and how can we take responsibility for our lives? How can we improve our physical health? How can we work on our mental health on a regular basis? How can we go on like a life learn, lifelong uh learning experience about how our minds uh, and our mindsets tick you know yeah and it but i did a i did a post the other day on it uh, i think there's a thread on twitter possibly uh, just to re- and, and i've been asked to write a article by the center of male psychology around this particular topic of going from learned helplessness to learned empowerment and and and, I, and that's that's certainly something that i i'm interested in but but blames Blame is kind of part and parcel of that, and I think that it's it's. I got a, a little story on blame. I got a text. I went. I'd spoken to my doctor about something, and my wife said, spoke to me in the evening, and she said, "Hey, I got a load of text messages from the doctor about uh, about what you went to see them about." I was like, "That's a bit weird." Why are they texting you? They should be texting me because now they text you a link or whatever and stuff. Okay. And so I rang up the doctor and I was like, okay, so my wife's been texted with these things. Is it, um, 
you shouldn't really be texting them because of client confidentiality. You shouldn't be texting them to my wife. You should check the, the <laughs> numbers correct. So, oh, well, that was, the, that was the number that you must have given us when you registered, so it's your fault. I'm like, okay. It's not about whose fault it is. I just want to sort out that it doesn't happen again. Yeah. So straight away, you're at this default position of, it's not my fault. So they're trying to blame it on blame it on me. And then we kind of get into this conversation a bit more and I'm kind of like, oh, actually, most organizations just quickly say, oh, what? by the way, what are the last four digits of your of your um, mobile number? Yeah. I'll text you the information. So we get into this long, this kind of dialogue about it. But But what was overriding about this conversation, Chris, is that, the person I was speaking to was doing everything they could to absolve themselves of blame in the situation. They're on the defense, right? Straight onto the defense here. Yeah. And it was it was really peculiar because when I was in a customer facing setting before, I was told to kind of, you know, ally yourself with the customer and and, and do what you can to sort of resolve the situation. But it, that's just one example of where I'm I'm noticing now. Did they apologize? Begrudgingly, they did apologise in the end. Um, See, I have and, a very uh, similar story to that. In and uh, but they wouldn't, they wouldn't, they just would not, would not accept. Uh, and I actually, in in the end, I said to them, I said, "Look, don't take this the wrong way. Like, I'm I'm a bit concerned that you're so defensive about this, rather than considering the small possibility that you could actually be in the wrong here and accepting responsibility for it, like." It's not my responsibility to check you've got the right number for me. If you're texting confidential information, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's on you to at least check the last four digits of it, you know. So, but yeah. yeah. Go on, you had a similar situation. No, I, I, I had a similar thing. <laughs> Don't want to pile on the NHS, but <laughs> we, had a, we had an issue with my daughter and um, my wife rang up back in June to try and get her an appointment. And they were like, oh, we haven't got anything till October, November like christ okay you know usual things about moaning about waiting lists and whatever anyway we, we we came home the other day and there's this letter on the on the mat we opened it up and my wife's oh great finally we've got an appointment so she opens it up and she's like oh we're really sorry oh, oh uh, you missed your appointment last friday i'm like what so anyway so i rang straight up because we've been waiting so long it's like it's, you know it's not an emergency thing, but it's something that is obviously impacting her on a day-to-day basis. So we, I ring up. I was like, look, I said, we just had this letter um, saying we missed our appointment. And they're like, oh, well, you know, you should have come in. I was like, well, we didn't even know we had an appointment. Oh, you must have. Well, the first thing she said is like, you must have. I was like, I, how, um, how must I have? Never had a letter. She's like, oh, no, well, what happens is um, once I get the appointment, it gets sent to this electric system and then gets sent out. I was like, Okay, I said, I'm not, I said, I'm telling you, we have not had a le- letter. Oh, you must have done. No. So anyway, we go back to this and I was like, So now my back's getting up, right? I'm getting annoyed because I'm thinking, hang on a second. A is affecting my daughter. B, you're calling me a liar. And like, that's pretty like, you know, whatever. So you go through this whole rigmarole. She's like, oh, actually, no, the letter never got sent out to you. And I was like, so you know when you have that like slight pause where you go, you're waiting for the the apology again. <laughs> She's like, I was like, okay. She goes, yeah, no, I don't know why that is. Um, anyway, there's, there's another twelve weeks. I was like, <laughs> <laughs> and you just think I want to complain to someone. Like it's not her fault because she's obviously like not in charge of sending the letters out. She's just the poor woman who's on the end of the phone <laughs> when I happened to ring up. 
But all I wanted her for to say was like, I'm really sorry. We've made a mistake here. And she wouldn't say it. Yeah. And um, anyway, it was all right in the end because she, she rings up next day. She goes, I will put you on the waiting list. And they got this appointment like literally two days later. But it's funny how people don't want to admit it wasn't even her. Like she wasn't even the person who's supposed to send the letter out, but she would not accept that the situation was wrong. And I don't know why that is. Because mm. I'm it's like you. Well, I've, I've worked in customer service before where it's like, you know, the customer isn't always right, but, you know, you still got to try and appease and whatever. Yeah. And, it, and it's as simple as, I'm very sorry, Mr. Hutchins. I can understand how frustrating that must be. Let me look into it and then we'll see what we can do for you. Yeah, exactly. Right. Strange. Well, it, just, it just changes the conversation. the same with yours, right? All you got to do is say, oh, I'm really, really sorry. Like, it definitely shouldn't have happened. And you go, no, it shouldn't. Okay, fine. And you move on, right? It's just, I don't know, it's funny. Yeah, it's a but, bit, yeah. But yeah, so in a roundabout way, like, yeah, blame blame is kind of the one thing I could get on my soapbox about. Because I, I just think that, I just think that a lot of... It's an easy way out, right? For a lot of people. It's a, It's a very easy out. And I think a lot, I think a lot of... Uh, and, and I think it becomes like a hot potato responsibility for stuff. So it's easy for people to put, oh, it's there for, they can pass the hot potato on. And I just think we just need to get back as a society to not just individuals, but also corporations and organizations just saying, right, okay. Um, the is, buck it stops. is it a fear thing, do you reckon? People losing their jobs or losing relationships or whatever? That's a, bloody, that's a good question. I don't, I, I, don't really know and i don't really know where it's kind of started so in your uh, instance for example i don't know who sent a text whether it was a doctor or the receptionist or whatever but is that receptionist text. thinking oh shit i'm gonna lose my job here yeah i think it could be it, it could be the doctor i think i think i think it's a combination of things i think it's someone worrying about i think it's individual ass covering yeah. i.e i don't want to I don't want to be seen to have fucked up because I'm going to get in trouble about it. But I think it's also because it kind of weirdly it comes back to your advice earlier on. <laughs> yeah, it's it's well, it's part and parcel of exactly the same thing. Like like it's like that hubristic sort of arrogance and pride that I, I can't ever get anything wrong or admit that I got anything wrong, sort of thing. And then and 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 again we see this. You know, come it comes back to kind of politics and other stuff. But yeah, it's 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 a peculiar. Maybe it's perfectionism. I don't know. Maybe it's that people believe that they should be perfect all the time, and if they get something wrong, then people are going to think worse of them. I don't really know what the answer of answer to it is, but but I, th- I well, but I think you do need to. Um, I think as a society, we do need to get back to this. Like someone asked someone on a LinkedIn the other day. Uh, Put, te- put something along the lines of tell me you're the owner of a business without telling me you're the owner of a business and my response was the buck stops at me <laughs> it's just like a simple like yeah. you know ultimately and but what's kind of weird now is like if you sort of sometimes with organizations if you say oh can i speak to your manager if you if you don't get the response that an acceptable response you say can i speak to your manager oh you're not allowed to speak to them or they can't speak to you or they're you know so some of the organizations get very very good at protecting you going higher up the tree to get the answer you want to speak to the person that the buck does stop at them you know and which which is also very interesting how some organizations are structured to 
to be kind of quite repellent towards someone that wants an answer you know so but then i guess the weird bit about that is then you go straight onto linkedin look who the ceo is of company xyz and go right (laughs) (laughs) i'm jumping the whole chain here mate i'm gonna go all the way up to top and we'll 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 worry about it then yeah yeah and i've done that once i've done that once or twice i've done that so (laughs) but um but yeah did it get get resolved when you did it it did actually get resolved and it got resolved very quick and sometimes when you speak to the people right at the top they're almost kind of a bit embarrassed in some respects yeah that it's actually got to a point where they've had to be contacted on dms on linkedin for something to get resolved yeah but yeah (laughs) (laughs) um okay so the next question is about advice but i don't know if you already answered that in in, when you were talking about lessons learned i don't know if you had any other bits of advice for us uh that's probably it actually that's probably your best the best you've had from me i think okay fair enough um so my next question is about the future and i'm gonna ask are you optimistic about the future i think i am actually yeah i am i am and i'll tell you the reason why because i've i've i heard someone speak on a podcast I think it was Adam Lane Smith. He was talking about how some of the kids coming through school now, you know, 12, 13, 14, they're actually really sensible kids Mm. who have got their heads screwed on in a way that may be the kind of, I mean, I hate to make it sound like anyone between, loosely speaking, our age and the kids coming out of school now haven't got their heads screwed on. But, Something's gone a little bit crazy in the last couple of decades, but like Adam Lane Smith said that said that he's been encouraged speaking to younger, you know, teenagers now how they do actually have their head screwed on, and you know that they're, they're kind of learning from the mistakes of what's come before. But somebody also I know who's got I think he's got a fifteen or sixteen year old boy, like he said exactly the same thing. He said that it's almost things are kind of going full circle now, and mm. I don't know whether that's because. Teenagers now, a teenage a sons and daughters of our generation. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I saw, I saw seemed... a chart very recently that was showing. Um, I'm paraphrasing this, but it's something like, um, "Have you had a cigarette? Have you had a drink? Have you had?" Um... And, and it, this trend had been they've been running this experiment for like thirty years or whatever. And there was a definite downtrend between, I think it was 14 and 15 year olds, like like our generation, like, you know, have you done drugs? Was that up here? And then it kind of, but current kids not doing it. Same with drinking, same with smoking. Um, I mean, other stuff's gone up, obviously like computer gaming's gone up. Um, but all this stuff that you look at, which, you know, your dad, like me, you sort of get worried about your kids, what they're going to do. And there was a definite trend in, um, bad stuff i guess like over the last 30 years going massively down and i was talking to someone about it the other day and we'd, we'd trying to work out why that was like was it uh and then she she actually thought it was financial based and um i was like oh i thought it was health based and maybe it's some sort of amalgamation of the two maybe it's just like looking at stuff that's gone on and actually maybe it's not as big a deal as um you know when we were teens i guess i don't know yeah i, d- I don't know i mean 
I think as well they're, they're, they're seeing through a lot of the ideology they're being taught as well or they're picking up in the kind of in the kind of pop culture and stuff and I and and, and again I think older generations are looking at some of the ideology coming through now um, and they're like actually kind of this is just absolutely kind of crazy yeah and we feel like sometimes no one's listening to us when we say oh actually this is just crazy some of this stuff that's coming out but these i think again to, to that generation they seem to be seeing through a lot of it and they're like what that's just stupid like why would anyone think that you know they're actually kind of seeing it for what it is you know and, yeah. and which i think is again it's a really good thing because like that's what or maybe they're the ones that are going to come through and sort out the political system in five, ten years' time. Maybe, maybe they're just going. Like, you're just talking nonsense now. Like, you know, like, and again, I speak when you speak to sort of the older generation, they were like, "God, if someone came out with that, we'd just be they just be laughed out of town. They'd just be like, what, what are you talking about?'" Yeah. And um, I don't know. It may hopefully, maybe we're where the next generation is kind of like are going to be those very people again, like their, you know, like their grandparents that have just like. What are you talking about? That's just complete and utter nonsense. I'm not even going to entertain that in any way, shape, or form. You know, mm. Maybe. so hopefully. So I do. Yeah, I, I, I am, I am positive about the future, but I think that there will be a degree of kind of pain that we go through to get to where we need to get to, and 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 and, and unravel some of this stuff. And you know, we talked about kind of housing a little bit earlier on in the conversation. You know, I, I. I, I firmly believe that houses should be something that people live in and not something that people make hundreds of thousands of pounds on year on year because that for the last however many decades that's not we're seeing now that's not a sustainable way for for, for, for people to to be sort of thing and it has a knock-on effect so again I, I'm, I'm hoping that we that we can begin to wrestle with some of these difficult things in the in, in the next few decades yeah, I, t- I mean, that's a big topic as well. I, I don't know how that gets resolved. I'm with you. I think everyone should be able to afford a house. And I think, like, there's that other chart you talked about, you know, your your dad buying the house. And it's the same for my parents, obviously, like, it's the same as their annual salary. And, like, I think now the average house is something like five, six, seven times the average salary, where you can only get a mortgage, like, three times. Your, like, it just it just doesn't add up. And again as a dad like I think about my kids and how they're ever going to be able to afford houses without some serious kind of reform coming in um mm. yeah I, that's, that's a big one for me the whole housing situation and the whole cost of living situation I think is is mental like the fact that people this winter I just it's not even gonna be a decide where to put their money like they just won't be able to afford to turn the heating on mm. Like, you know, and I say that from a very privileged position. I know I'm going to be able to do it, but it's just not right. <laughs> it's just no, it's and tragic, it, and it comes, really. And it comes back to what you said, you know, you said about like, you know, you know, the power being switched off and stuff and that, you know, we're civilized human beings living in, in a Western world that should have progressed to a point where this stuff isn't even an issue. It's not yeah. even an afterthought. No. Like how we how whether or not we'll have power whether or not we can afford to buy a property to live in you know this stuff should be it kind of in terms of things that we worry about in life this stuff should be squared away and forgotten and done and dusted you know and we should be moving on to but it's like this is kind of putting us back into the dark ages a little bit you know and just like it just doesn't 
doesn't really kind of make any sense. But but like in terms of housing, there's a knock on. Like we've just said, it impacts ch- childcare. It, it's going to impact what age people retire. It's good. It also impacts relationships because if you get into a relationship as a, a young couple, there is also a financial obligation cost attached to that as well. Yeah. So, uh, but 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 also, probably our parents' generation, uh, and certainly the baby boomer generation, they will have lived a lot of their lives without any more mortgage or housing debt, and probably a large proportion of their of their lives, like. Yeah. And over four decades, that is that the notion of living most of your probably 50, more than fifty percent of your life without any housing debt, like that's going to be like a distant memory, you know. And just so yeah, there's, there's a lot of things that, but I, I do, I do remain optimistic. I think, um, I think as human beings, I think we have a natural instinct to be able to resolve this stuff. But I think there will be medium-term pain for long-term gain i think yeah that's my hope so no i agree um okay right last question for you is a question that was suggested by a previous guest and once we've finished i will ask you for a question to ask um my next guest weirdly this question was supposed to be asked someone yesterday and they dropped out at the last minute and they and they obviously didn't get it so you're getting it but i'm actually quite glad now i've seen the question i'm quite glad you're getting it um the question is what is one quality that your parents have or had um that you would like to pass on to your children when i wrote the eulogy for my dad's funeral one of the things i remember vividly writing down was that he had a fundamental understanding of human nature he knew that we weren't perfect he knew that People had their different shortcomings and he wrestled with that as much as anyone else. Uh, I think probably I would describe my mum in the same vein. So I think I think that would be that would be the answer the answer to the question. Um, That's quite a good superpower, isn't it? Yeah, because I think and and again it's I can see why you're glad that you asked me this question because it, it, it very much spurs off of what we've been talking about today. Yeah. It's this, <clears throat> we're not perfect. We're a work in progress and we don't really stop learning about ourselves and other people and how other people react to life and the things they encounter in life. We don't ever stop learning about that until we kind of draw our terminal breath. <clears throat> I think. Do you think about this stuff like when it comes to parenting your kids? I mean, actively, yes. actively think about it. I mean, yeah, I think I do because, like, again, again, one of the strengths of like dad improvement or working on your working on yourself and your self improvement as a dad is that when you make mistakes and you and you get stuff wrong and you and uh, and and you kind of fall short or or whatever, you, it's incumbent on you to actually. So that you think, well, I've made a mistake, but uh, I'll try harder next time, or maybe I'm being a bit too hard on myself. And so you have that kind of, you almost count, you 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 almost counsel yourself through it, like uh, you're your own therapist, if you like. Yeah. And I think that 
the more your kids can see you doing that and the more you mentor your kids in how to do that, that's got to be a good skill for them as they go into adulthood. Because you're saying, because, you know, my daughter, my oldest daughter is 13 now. And so she is very hard on herself sometimes about stuff. So I have to have that very conversation. You know, are you being a bit hard on yourself? What if we broke this down into like some manageable chunks? What if, um, does this need to be done straight away or do you, can you do it in like a week or so's time? Yeah. Um, and, and this is exactly the same conversation as I have with myself. And I'm like, I'm 43 and she's 13. So, yeah. So, it, it, and, and this is why I think that, like I say, working on yourself as a dad is really, is going to pay massive dividends for your kids' lives because you're going through that process, learning a process of kind of self-compassion and and understanding and then and then guiding them through that same process as a child or as an adolescent or whatever yeah uh, so i think it is it is kind of quite powerful but also also in how they deal with other people you know uh a, a good a good kind of example of this is like uh you know, when you're driving your car and someone cuts you up and you'll get you get really pissed off about it and that's kind of your instant reaction. The other flip side of the coin is is that person actually could have just got the news that, that a relative of theirs has been rushed to hospital and they're trying to get to the hospital. I, I use this can. example a lot. And they and and they've not noticed they've just cut it cut you up or it could be that um They've, they've, they're just on their way back from the doctor and the doctor's given them a terminal cancer diagnosis or something, you know, something like that. So you might think that they're really slighting you by cutting you up in traffic, but in actual fact, their brain is dealing with so much bigger stuff than what you are on that particular day and that particular time when they cut you up. Have you, have you listened to Rangan Chatterjee on Stephen Bartlett's podcast? I haven't, but I do. I have seen some of Rangan Chatterjee's stuff. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I've that example you've just given there is what he talks about on the podcast, and I have several times now put that podcast up as I think it's one of the most important podcasts for anyone to listen to. And the reason behind it is exactly what you're talking about. There is just developing that bit of empathy and actually. I mean, I won't spoil it for for you to listen to because he talks about people being. He's like reframing it and turn those people instead of being the ones that they annoy you, turn them into your happiness heroes, and looking at them with that lens that you've just said is like maybe they've had that argument with their boyfriend, girlfriend, wife, husband that morning, and they're in a bad mood, or maybe their kids have been up all night. And I think it's a really, really good way to look at life. I, honestly, I think it's it's powerful. I'll share I'll share the link with you afterwards. It's a good one. All right, cool. Um, okay where can people come and say hi and fellow dads and men come and learn more about what you're working on uh, the best place uh, probably at the moment on social media is Twitter or LinkedIn I'm doing a bit more on LinkedIn at the moment Okay. Uh, the podcast is uh, the Guild of Dads podcast where I interview different people not necessarily about fatherhood, but it's actually kind of, I like psychology. I like relationships. Relationships yeah. is probably my speciality. So you can check that out. That's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, 
uh, YouTube as well. Uh, but yeah, just shoot me a message on any of those or ping me an email, joe at guildofdads.com. Okay. I always like to hear you know, if there's any takeaways people have from this episode with you, if there's anything that resonated or there's anything that you're like, yeah, I agree with you or I disagree <laughs> with you. <laughs> by all means, drop me, AM, drop me a message and tap by all means, tag Chris in as well. I know you're on Twitter as well. So yeah, yeah. yeah I'd love to hear from people. Okay, I'll link to all those below. Um, Joe, I want to thank you for, for uh, chatting. I, and I've said this to a few guests in the past. Like, obviously, when you chat to people, you don't know, you don't really know what you're going to get out of it. And there's always in my mind that little bit of fear that, oh, what if they're, what if they're a bad guest? What if they're like boring? What if they're like nothing good to say? But I had, like, I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to you, and so much to to the point. I'm actually kind of. I probably rushed you on a couple of questions because I was thinking I could probably end up chatting to you for about six hours here and I wouldn't even bat an eyelid because I've got so many things that like we could talk about. So I wanted to thank you for sharing your time and apologize if I did cut you off a bit when it wasn't intentional. It was just, I was very conscious of your time and I didn't want it to run into a three or four hour podcast. So thank you for, for coming along this morning. No, that's all right. I appreciate it. And like I say, if there's, if you, if you want me to do a part two or if there's any of the subjects when you're listening back and you think, yeah, let's do a deep dive on that, just let me know and I'm, I'm happy to do that. I will do. I'll have to think of another 10 questions to make it, uh, <laughs> make it stick to the brand. But Joe, thank you for, for your time this morning. All right, no worries. Well, there you go. Cheers, Chris. Cheers. That was 10Q interview with Mr. Joe Horton. If you made it to the end, thank you. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm assuming you kind of liked it, seeing as you're still here. Feel free to share any thoughts on any of the social channels at 10Q interview everywhere you may look. That's all from me for now. Make sure you've hit subscribe wherever you're listening to this. And the next 10Q interview will be live in your feed very, very shortly. Take care. Bye.